Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Time and Attention, the podcast dedicated to helping you become a better, more intentional human being. This is episode number 69, Scaling Your Work. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome John List to the podcast. John is one of the top and most renowned economists in the world. He's been shortlisted for the Nobel Prize. He teaches economics at the University of Chicago. He has served as a presidential advisor, as well as the chief economist at Uber, the ride-sharing company. He now serves as the chief economist over at Lyft, not Uber. He is the author of the terrific new book, which is out now. It's called The Voltage Effect. And it's all about how to scale your ideas so they can make a bigger impact. It's a wide-ranging interview that we'll get into. It's a tiny bit longer than the ones that we usually publish. But we just had so much to talk about. And I really do think that you're going to enjoy this conversation with John List. Just a fascinating, fascinating guy, uh, an economist through and through, and also just a really nice guy through and through. We, we had a blast uh, chatting. Uh, we chat about scaling ideas, work, policy, as well as a bit of, about his work in the field. I highly, highly recommend the book, The Voltage Effect, if you're curious at all uh, about how to make a difference at scale. So let's jump right in. John List, welcome to Time and Attention. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's it's great to have you. So uh, I love I, I absolutely loved this book. Uh, so let, let's start with the very very basics of what you cover in it, uh, starting from just fresh, as if somebody has never seen the book before. So what is scale and what is voltage? Sure, those are those are two very good and, and two very basic questions that we need to understand. So. The way I think about it is we are scientists and we explore whether an idea can work in a Petri dish. Mm. And that's great. So, for example, there's a suburb of Chicago called Chicago Heights. And I started a preschool for three, four and five year olds in Chicago Heights. And... What I find is that I can create a really cool and persuasive curriculum that can affect how much children learn is three, four, and five-year-olds. Okay, so I can move. And what that means in economies is I can move standardized. I like that, economies. Exactly. I I like how you said that, economies. Exactly. In economies, I can move cognitive test scores and I can move non-cognitive test scores with my curriculum. Hmm. Okay, so I have a program that works. And then the next question is, can I scale that program? And what I mean by that is, can I take the results in my program from Chicago Heights and extend it to, say, all of Chicago or all of Illinois or all of America or all of North America, that's typically what we call scaling. You Mm. take a program in the small and you scale it up to the large. And what you hope 
is that the original results that you found in the small or in the Petri dish in Chicago Heights in this case are actually found in the large. Okay. Mm. Now, when I went to policymakers and told them about my great program in Chicago Heights, I was met with a lot of skepticism. So they basically said, John, that's a really neat idea, but it will never scale. And I said to them, what do you mean by that? And they said, you know, all the experts tell us that they have a great new program, but when we scale it up to broader populations and broader situations, it ends up being only a fraction of what they promised us it was going to be. Mm. Okay, so then I go on and I say to them, why do you think that's the case? You know, why do you think that in general, you have this scaling problem. And in particular, why don't you think my program in Chicago Heights will scale? And nearly every time they say, because your program doesn't have the silver bullet. <laughs> I say, well, hmm. what, what is this silver bullet thing? And Where do and, I find one know, of these silver bullets? I'll yeah. take a dozen of them. Where, where, yeah. where can I buy them? And then they say, you know... We're not really sure what the silver bullet is, but a lot of times people say it's fidelity, that what you run in the Petri dish is a very different program than what you end up running at scale. And that's called mm. fidelity in the literature. So now within those policymaking statements, you have some assertions. One assertion is when you find a great result in the Petri dish, when you scale it, it will end up being a much less successful intervention. That assertion is correct. And that's what I call the voltage effect. It's mm. essentially turning a mountain, which I have this Petri dish result, which looks like a great result. It's a mountain. But when I scale it, it turns into a molehill. Mm. It's only a fraction of what I thought it was going to be. That's called the voltage effect. And that's that's why I titled my book, The Voltage Effect, because we always have to concern ourselves with scaling, first of all, because you can really only change society at scale. And then secondly, we have to figure out which ideas will have this voltage effect and yeah. which will not have the voltage effect. Mm, and, and that's one of the things I, I really liked about the book is how you settled on these five, I, I guess you could call them uh, principles that are hurdles we need to overcome when we scale something. And uh, also how they work across so many different contexts, you know, whether we're building a business, a career, uh, or designing policy, even as you were just mentioning with this, uh, the schools in Chicago. So those five hurdles... How did you arrive at those in particular from this ambiguous uh, thing, fidelity? How did you get from fidelity to those five principles? Exactly. That's a great question. So I actually started with the second assertion of the policymakers, which was basically that scaling is a silver bullet problem. So 
what I did then was I did what any good economist will do, and that's begin with economic theory. So I put together a bunch of mathematical models with some co-authors, and those models ended up helping us because then when we started to generate data and we started to do what I call a DNA analysis, what I want to do is I want to look at all of the ideas in the business world, in the public policy world. I want to look at the ones that failed to scale. And I also want to look at the ones that actually made it at scale. And I want to do like a post-op that is driven by my theory. Because really, when you, when you think about this, it's a, it's a big, dark room. And yeah. the way I think about theory is it helps me to shine a flashlight in certain regions of the room. So I'm guided by the theory, and I have mounds and mounds of data. And the first thing that keeps popping up is that the policymakers are exactly wrong. This is not a silver bullet problem. It's the exact opposite of that. And what I mean by opposite is that it's a weakest link problem. So when you hear weakest link, I, I want you to think about the game show. Air, yeah, yeah, oh, exactly. No. Okay. Don't think about the game. In fact, I've written an academic paper on that. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, on the on discrimination in, in weakest link. When when I think about weakest link, I want to think about airport security. You know, the airplane is only as safe as the weakest link in the line of security. You can think about uh, driving a car. The car isn't going to work if it has a flat tire or if it has a piston that's not working. Um, it's a weakest link problem. It's not a best shot problem. A, a kind of a, a, a silver bullet or a best shot problem is it has one feature that causes it to succeed at scale. This is actually the reverse of that, and and I like to think of this as the Anna Karenina problem. So so Tolstoy started his famous novel titled Anna Karenina with what I think is probably the best line uh, that I've ever read in a novel, which is essentially, happy families are all alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Mm. So think about scaling. Scalable ideas are all alike. Each unscalable idea is unscalable in its own way. So now that's saying, okay, there are a lot of dimensions that an idea can fail on. And my book looks at a lot of different dimensions, and it whittles it down to five. And exactly what you said, it's the five principles in the book. They're what I call the, the five vital signs. And it's um, what is the vitality of your idea? So as an entrepreneur, we might think, you know, how big can my idea be? Or how should I think about scaling my idea? These are important questions that we should face early on when we're deciding whether to invest our time and money in an idea. And, and that's what hmm. the book goes into is it it whittles it down to these five vital signs. And it says you should check each of these five signs or five hurdles 
And after you cross over each of the five hurdles, now you're in business. I don't know if you're able to sum up the five character. There's just so many questions I could ask you after reading The Voltage Effect. Uh, is it possible to give a, a quick summary of what those are? No, absolutely. So, so these five signs come from both my work in the business world. So I'm the, I'm the chief economist at Lyft. And before that, I was a chief economist for two years at Uber. And about 20 years ago, I served in the White House. And I served in the White House as an advisor to the president, uh, President Bush, too. And what I learned is that each of these places in society have scaling issues and they face a scaling problem. But the thread that connects all of these scaling problems is really these five vital signs. So vital sign number one is false positives. And what I mean by that is, does your idea have voltage? Um, does it actually work? Now, in many cases, in government or in business, we actually run too quickly and we try to scale up ideas that never had voltage to begin with. Okay, so that's vital sign number one. Vital sign number two in the book, I title it, Know Your Audience. So what that means is how big of a slice of the pie in the business world can your idea capture? And in mm. the policy world, it's this program that we have, uh, how many people can it be helpful for? Is it 1%? Is it 8%, 12%? Um, it goes all the way up. So know your audience. You know Who does it work for? Vital sign number three is understand the situation. So what that means is in the Petri dish or in your original study, you end up finding that your idea works. But most of the time, those data are gathered from a very unique set of circumstances. So if you think about Chicago Heights, yeah. when I started the preschool, I had to hire 30 teachers. And what I did was I hired 30 teachers in the usual way that the school district hires them. I thought that that would be a representative way to do it. But in the end, if I need to hire 30,000 really good teachers from and around Chicago Heights, and if teachers are important for my curriculum, now <laughs> I've just developed an idea that's not scalable because... While I can hire 30 really good teachers, it's very difficult for me to hire 30,000 really good teachers. So that's an idea that is really built to fail at scale. Mm, so Because of those ingredients. Exactly, that, that exactly. So I didn't test the ingredients that I'm going to be able to get at scale. I didn't test those in the Petri dish. Now, now this is where I think about we really should be looking at the boundary conditions of our idea in the Petri dish. So what I mean by that is if your idea is based on hiring 30,000 really good teachers, you know you probably won't be able to. So in your original study, you should sample some really bad teachers and hire them in the classroom and see how well your curriculum does in that case. And that's what I call policy-based evidence. Mm. 
So we always talk about evidence-based policy, and that's great. You know, it's trying to bring evidence to policymaking, but really I'm trying to turn that on its head. And I want the entrepreneur or the policymaker to envision at scale, what are the constraints that I'm going to face? It might be, I don't have good ingredients, or I don't have good teachers, or I might not have the resources to scale. And I want you to bring those constraints back to the Petri dish and then test whether your idea still works in the worst case scenarios. You know, we typically only look at our idea through the best case scenarios. And I think that's a mistake. So vital sign number four is what I call unintended consequences. So unintended consequences, I want you to think about this way. Whenever there is a new idea or a new policy, there are in many cases unintended effects of that idea. So for example, um, when seatbelts were put in cars, well, that made everyone safer. But you know what happened was people started to drive more recklessly. So they were undoing Hmm. some of the good stuff from the seatbelts. Now, at Uber, my team was responsible for rolling out the tipping app in uh, you know the the ability to tip back in 2017, yeah. you know Uber didn't allow tipping within the app. Uh, my team, which was called Team Ubernomics at, at Uber, was responsible for. That's where the economies happened. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yes. yeah exactly. So, so we did a uh, l- let's say a pilot test, whereby we chose a market. And then we allowed 5% of the drivers to receive tips. And what happened was they made more money and they worked more. So it was like a win-win-win situation. But when we rolled that up to every driver in the market, what happens is the drivers drive more. But because there are so many drivers now in the market, there's actually an oversupply and it exactly offsets the tip effect. So the drivers are making exactly the same per hour as they were before tipping, after the introduction of tipping. Because of the dynamics in the market, it undid all of the good wage effects from allowing tipping. So so the, the fifth and final hurdle that an idea has to overcome is what I call the supply side of the problem. So the first four vital signs, the first four hurdles are all about the benefit side of an idea. You know, who benefits, the where's wins and how's of the the benefits, et cetera. Now, the fifth vital sign is the supply side or how much does it cost you to supply that program or supply the idea? And in economics, this is called either economies of scale or diseconomies of scale. So the general idea is, as you grow larger, does it cost less per unit to produce? That's called economies of scale. Or if it actually costs more per item to produce as you get larger, that's called diseconomies of scale. So in nearly every case, 
really good ideas that scale, have big ranges that are associated with economies of scale. So what what is it that uh, about scaling up an idea that exposes these fault lines and our uh, ideas only after we scale them up? It, it, will there always be a little bit of risk that we can't foresee in scaling up ideas? Is there like is identifying the vulnerabilities just a matter of going through this list, or is is it more of an art than a science? No, no. So I I think so far in in this world, scaling has been all art, and it has been mm. all move fast and break things, uh, yeah, fake it till yeah. you make it, <laughs> uh, throw yeah. spaghetti against a wall, and to see what sticks. Yeah, yeah, see what sticks. So so. Great. That that's art. What I'm talking about here is adding science to scaling. And what I'm referring to is you can use my five hurdles as a checklist to try to figure out if the world stays the same, or you can kind of forecast how the world will look. Will my idea at least have a chance to scale? So it's giving you the playbook as an entrepreneur to say, you know what? Does the idea work? Is it a false positive or not? Who does it work for? In what situations does it work? Are there spillovers or unintended consequences? Yeah. How much will it cost me to provide this good? You need to check all of those five boxes and you can do it in an easy way in which you try to generate data around each of these. And then the data inform you scientifically kind of how big your tent is. Now, at this yeah. point, I want to make sure that your listeners know that this is not a book to explain that only big ideas like Amazon or Uber are worth chasing. That's not what the book's about. The, the book is about helping you understand the nature and extent of scaling that your specific idea can plausibly go through. So when I think about my dad and brother and my grandpa, they're truck drivers. Now, in their world, it's one truck, one man, one really good life because yeah. they understand that the secret to their one man business is their charisma and their ability to talk to farmers and talk to paper mills and be a good trucker. They realize that, you know, some trucking companies can scale and that's if you have the know-how, how to have a hundred rigs, et cetera, et cetera. My my brother, dad, and grandfather realized that their comparative advantage or what they're good at is yakking it up with the client. And what I learned in my research is that humans don't scale. So they, they're smart enough to know, look, if I go into this business, this is going to be the extent of it, but that's okay with me. This is this yeah. is what I want. This is a great life. What I don't want is that, say, take the chef. Um, you have a lot of master chefs who have a great restaurant, and then they don't think through 
what is the reason for my success? Now, if the restaurant is successful because of the chef, they're done. They can't scale. And the reason why is because you can make 30 other restaurants. But if the chef was a secret sauce in the original restaurant, those are going to fail. Yeah. But if the secret sauce was like the ingredients. An actual secret sauce. Exactly. A literal yeah. secret sauce. <laughs> you know, you're kind of in business now because if you can replicate those ingredients at the other restaurants, you have a scalable idea. This is what yeah. I'm talking about. I, I'm trying to save the public a lot of money. I'm trying to save venture capitalists and individuals a lot of time and money. Don't chase a dream that from the beginning never has a chance. Mm, now, if yeah. you say, look, I still want to grow, okay, then pivot. You know, change up your idea so all of the elements of the scaling problem are checked off, then you have a chance to scale. And that kind of leads to one of the later chapters of the book on on quitting. And one of the other ideas that you cover is knowing when to quit. And you write about how we don't quit nearly often enough or even soon enough. Uh, so on that personal level, looking at the ideas in our own life, in our own world that either scale or do not, uh, how do we discover which projects and ideas we should be uh, quitting, not to mention when we should be quitting doing them. No, exactly. That, that, that's a great question. So you're right. In, in chapter eight, I, I talk about the common problem that I see entrepreneurs in businesses and governments and individuals, just individuals sitting at home. A typical mistake that people make is that they don't quit soon enough. Hmm. Now, I think there are three reasons why. So let's first kind of diagnose the problem, and then we can come back to how to figure out if I should be quitting an idea. So there are really three major reasons why people don't quit on time or, or they, they take too long to quit. The first reason is society tells us that quitting is bad. Society tells us, you know, winners never quit. Quitters never win. And, you know, the Winter Olympics will be coming up next month. And we're going to have these great stories about a 41-year-old who's been chasing their Olympic dream for yeah. 22 years. And they finally made it. And then her mom will be on TV crying about, I knew that they would never quit. And, and that's oh, the that's headline. that's my baby. <laughs> that's my baby. But, but we don't have headlines for the billions of people who go down a dry hole and they spend their entire lives trying something that never had a chance to be successful. Okay, so that's that's kind yeah. of reason number one. Reason number two is something called confirmation bias. Now, this is a bias that psychologists have talked about for years, and it's basically when you're generating insights or information about whether your idea is any good, what we tend to do as humans is anytime some data or information come in that say, my idea stinks, I tend to disregard that and say, oh, that's just flawed data. And then when the data come in that say, 
this is a brilliant idea, then I tend to say, yeah, that's the right data. So it's, it's, I'm such a genius. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a genius. I knew I was right. So, so that's number two. We have this psychological bias called confirmation bias that leads us down a bad track in many cases. Now, reason number three is a very economic reason, and that's opportunity cost. Mm. So the way I want you to think about opportunity cost is anytime you're chasing a dream or you have an idea that you're, you're trying to scale or, or you have a business or you have a relationship or you have an apartment, you have a job, whatever, what we tend to neglect is the opportunity or the opportunities that we are foregoing because we're engaged in this activity. Now, that's called opportunity cost neglect. And that is per pervasive. So what that really means is, you know, whenever I talk to people who, thinking, who are thinking about quitting their job or, or moving apartments or, or what have you, it's nearly always the case that they're quitting their job because something bad happened in the workplace. You know, their boss turned on them. They don't like a coworker. Or yeah. when it comes to the apartment, it's always a, a leaky roof or the neighbors are bad. Um, we always look to change when our own lot in life becomes soiled. That shouldn't be true. We should always, and when I say always, we should periodically, let's say monthly, we should look around at what opportunities are out there. And we should be just as likely to move jobs or move apartments if there's a really good opportunity. And, and those are the cases that we should constantly be saying, if I have this job, it means I can't have another job. And if the opportunity set gets really, really good, that should cause you to move just as often as your own lot in life being soiled. Yeah, okay. you, you had a great example on that in the book on uh, wanting to be a golfer versus an economist. <laughs> I that, remember. That's, that's exactly right. I, I, I came to this kind of conclusion because, I, you know, the only reason why I went to college, I'm a, I'm a first-gen kid, and the only reason why I went to college is because I received a partial golf scholarship, and I hmm. wanted to be a golf professional. And I noticed very early on that I was never going to be close to being good enough to be a golf pro. So I was confronted with this, you know, should I quit? I, I didn't quit my golf scholarship. I played all four years out in college, but I quit my dream and I took on a new dream and that's being an economist. So uh, how can we discover what, what projects we're in the middle of, what ideas we, we should be quitting yeah. and when we should quit them? I exactly. So now there are a lot of cases that aren't black and white. There, there are a lot of cases like, well, you know, maybe it's 55% of the time I should quit, 45% I should stay. I, I want um, the listeners to go through sort of two exercises. One exercise is... I never want people to quit a job or move an apartment, of course, unless you have a good opportunity waiting for you. Uh, I, I see too often that people get upset or they want to move, and there's not a realistic option waiting for them. So you, you should never fall into that trap. The other thing I want people to look for is, is that new job opportunity, does that 
use my skills or what I'm good at, what an economist calls a comparative advantage. So a comparative advantage is what am I relatively good at? So does that new opportunity leverage what I'm good at and what I love? So if it does, and if it actually exists, those are two key features that should move people from the status quo to something new. Because you should always be in a job or, or doing an idea that, of course, you're good at, but also that you love. Because I've never seen a successful person wake up in the morning and loathe the job that they're going to. It's just, it's really hard to be monomaniacal if you loathe what you're doing. Ooh, another good word. <laughs> yeah, monomaniacal. Yeah, every successful person... A uber successful person who I have met, whether it's in the White House or in academia or in the business world or nonprofit world, the uber successful ones are monomaniacal. Mm. And, and that's a trait that each of them share. Because, like, let's take Travis Kalanick when he founded, uh, co-founded Uber. Every time that you would talk to Travis about Uber and about local transportation, he would have a unitary or single objective that was, I want to transform urban transportation. And I want to get people from point A to point B in a more successful and efficient way. And I'm going to die in my grave trying to do so. Monomaniacal. Mm, I love that. I do want to ask you one final thing. One, one, another idea that I loved uh, from the book. First of all, I'm happy you're not a, a professional golfer. I, I'm happy <laughs> you took up economics because you, you're sharing so many great ideas. I feel almost like I'm talking to Arden when I'm talking to you. Maybe it's, maybe it's the, the words you use like uh, comparative advantage, outside options, sunk cost, opportunity cost. I, I, feel, I feel right at home. Maybe I should have been an economist too. But uh, one, one final idea I wanted to ask you about is thinking along margins. And you write about how important it is to think along the margins when we make decisions, um, when we're deciding how to scale, when to scale. So what, maybe just starting from the basics, what does it mean uh, to think marginally? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Chris, because one of the foundational features of economics is we teach people to think on the margin. Now, when you say think on the margin, it's it's not an evidentiary word. It's like, okay, what does that actually mean? So in the classroom, we kind of tell people, be marginal thinkers, and then we leave it. So it's really hard for the student to kind of understand what does it actually mean to think on the margin. Here's an example that I like to think about. So at Lyft, I'm the chief economist at Lyft, and at Lyft, we care about um, acquiring new drivers. So we have a driver acquisition team that about six months ago, they were presenting a slideshow to me about all of the effective ways that they were bringing in new drivers. So they put up a slide that said, look, on average, 
It cost $500 to bring in a new driver using Facebook ads. And it cost about $600 to bring in the average driver using Google ads. Okay, so we always think in averages. So then they go on to say, because the average cost is lower for Facebook, we're going to put more money in Facebook ads. So I raised my hand and I said, okay, those averages are over thousands of drivers. What happened in terms of the last 50 or the last 100 drivers. And they said, well, we just don't know, but we'll, we'll get back to you. You know what happens is the last 50 drivers using Google ads cost on average about $400. And the last 50 drivers in, from Facebook cost about $800 per driver. Wow. So now that's marginal thinking that how much did it cost to get the last driver and how much is it going to cost to get the next driver? A lot of times we don't segment our data finely enough to make a decision on the margin. But what I told them, of course, was let's double down on Google now and let's keep watching as we spend this new money, this marginal money, it's going to be much more effective on Google than Facebook because the data tell us it will be, and that's marginal thinking. I had the same kind of example in the White House when we were talking about cleaning up hazardous and non-hazardous waste sites. It, it looked really good if you looked at the averages that said we should spend a lot more money on hazardous waste sites. But when you looked at the margin, like what about the last few hazardous versus the mm. last few non-hazardous, we should double or triple down on the non-hazardous waste sites. So it, it happens ubiquitously where people use averages to represent and use for decision making when really we should be talking about margins. Fascinating. I would encourage anybody, anybody listening to this right now to pick up a copy of the book. It's called The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. John, List, I have one final question for you. You, at least on the surface, you live a big life. You know, you have eight kids, which we haven't <laughs> talked about. Uh, you write books, the y-axis, uh, plus the voltage effect. You're the chief economist at Lyft. You're a professor. You publish regularly. Uh, we talk a lot about time management on the podcast, and as well as attention management. Do you have any go-to strategies uh, for managing so many competing priorities for your time in general, but also every day? Yeah, absolutely. So so thanks for that question and thanks for the kind words. So so sort of two bits of advice. Um one, I don't sleep very much. So <laughs> I think that humans have tricked or convinced themselves that they need to sleep many more hours than they actually do. So I, I would urge um your listeners to curb the sleep a bit. But but then secondly... How much do you sleep every night? I'd say four and a half, five hours. Four and a half. Huh. 
And you're still functional. You're still uh, coherent. I, well, I hope so. You're, you're going to have to tell well, me. Semi-coherent. Semi- I should, no, I'm quasi-coherent. <laughs> quasi-coherent. Now, now, the other lesson is to understand your production function. Okay, mm. l- let me unpack that. What that means is at Lyft, I know what I'm good at. I- I'm good at talking to executives. I'm good at using economics and field experiments to drive decision-making. But there are a lot of things that I'm not very good at. So I need to hire people on my Lyft team who are good at those things that I'm not so good at. We tend to hire people who look like us and who do things and think like us. That's wrong. What I want you to do is say, look, I'm trying to write an academic paper, you know, back in in the academic life, or I'm trying to be chief economist, or I'm trying to write a textbook, or I'm trying to write a popular book. Whatever it is, it's very important to understand how the inputs, what inputs you need, and how those inputs map into outputs, and then the inputs that you're not good at, you need to hire or or partner with. And I think people tend too often mm. to try to be the jack of all trades or the Jill of all trades, and they don't understand their production functions deeply enough to know who and why they should be hiring these types of people. I think the biggest mistake people make is that they develop partnerships and they have coworkers and hire workers to do jobs that they shouldn't be doing. Mm. You, you need to understand your production function and you need to develop a team that each has a comparative advantage to fill aspects of the production function. Now that takes an understanding of your production function. And a lot of people don't think about it that way. They, they mm. don't think about what inputs do I need to get to my final goal? Like I have a final goal and then I'm going to yeah. backward induct and come back to who do I work with or who do I hire? And then they end up putting duplicates. They hire people like themselves around themselves. And, and that's not a winning production function. That's not a winning formula. That is fascinating. I, I love that answer. I love that answer. Uh, and and one, one random other question. Have you ever done a, a DNA test? Because there, there's a gene mutation, uh, ADRB1, that uh, causes people to naturally need less sleep oh, than six and a half hours a night uh, without any ill side effects. I think you might just have this. Yeah, I actually had never heard about that, but I love it because some doctors have told me you should force yourself to sleep because there are theories out there that say you can only be awake a certain number of hours in a in a typical lifetime. Yeah. I don't know if that's oh, true. Oh, interesting. Or not. So you're going you're you're going to die any day then. Uh, I, look, look, I'm di- I'm burning the candle on both ends, my yeah, friend. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get this it, podcast out. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, you got life to live. What am I doing keeping you here? Uh, so the book, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. John List, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
thank you so much for having me and, and thanks everyone for listening and I hope you enjoy the book. <laughs>